Well, good morning again, Mountain View. It's so good to be with you virtually here again this morning. And uh, before we dig in and we continue our study, <coughs> excuse me, study in the book of Acts, I want to uh, pause for a moment and just tell you how much I appreciate the songs we've just sung. Uh, because this is the reality in the time that we live and in the circumstances <clears throat> around us, I, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that, that He is living forever and that He is great and, and He's on the throne and, and we can just look to Him and honor Him and, and celebrate the fact that He has us in His hands. And so I hope that that remains true for you even today. I want to pause really quick because we had a leadership meeting this past week and, and uh, part of our conversation with our management team was a few weeks ago, we started this commitment card uh, drive that we do every year where we ask you to communicate with our finance team your intentions for giving for the next fiscal year. And so we did that for a couple of weeks. I actually said, thank you. We're not going to keep asking. We actually said, thank you and, and kind of pulled it down. This week after discussing with our leadership, um, uh, there's a couple of things that have come up. And, and, and the biggest thing is there's a significant reduction in the communication. And I, I absolutely think the circumstances around us contribute to that. But, but we're asking the question, is, is the reduction a reality of the circumstances financially that we're going to be in the next year? Or is it that we just need to keep asking and, and try to get uh, a wide range of people to respond? And so I'm asking you this morning that if you call Mountain View your church home, would you use the link that will be provided for you? And, and would you communicate your intentions for giving to Mountain View for the next year? Um, this is really important for us, especially right now, as we look at a potential reduction, we just want to know where are we and what is this, uh, what, what, what are the results for ministry and the type of ministry that we'll be able to do. So if you haven't already, if you have, thank you, but if you haven't already uh, communicated this information, would you do this using the form that's provided? Uh, this is confidential, Only, actually only one person on our finance team uh, sees this, but it gives us a really good uh, equation to figure out exactly what, um, what we can look for in income. And so there you go. Now, not to confuse you, but uh, part of what's interesting right now is we're going to talk about Ananias and Sapphira. And if you're familiar with Acts chapter 5, then you're going to know that Ananias and Sapphira get struck down by God because they didn't give all of what they should have given. And so just know this, know this, that this was not intentional, that this was a coincidence. But then again, are there coincidences, right? And so let's review, let's catch up where we're at with the book of Acts so far. In Acts chapter 1 and 2, we really learned that the early disciples, they had this power. And this power came upon them. And one of the reasons they had the power is because the message truth that Jesus is alive, they were completely devoted to it. They wanted to do everything they could to spread it. And so the message truth was Jesus was alive. They were devoted to the message. And what happened is they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And so great things began to happen within the church. The church began to spread and, and, and multiply and disciples were being made. And here's one of the things we learned last week, that the primary weapon of the early Christians was prayer. When Jesus ascended and he said, go to the upper room, what did they do? They prayed in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 4, when persecution started coming from the religious leaders and the political leaders, guess what they did? They prayed. And so it's so important for us to remember what we learned from the early church, that when things aren't going well, or even when things aren't going that our primary weapon is prayer. And the church, it grew. 
It grew, it multiplied. Disciples were being made because of the preaching. We see in Acts chapter 2 when Peter and the disciples are accused of being drunk. He stands up and he preaches and he talks about Jesus. They heal a crippled man in Acts chapter 3 and Peter preaches. In Acts chapter 4, Peter preaches and guess what? People turn to Jesus. And then we see as a result of the miracles in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3, people turn to Jesus. But then there's this other unique characteristic of the early church that caused the early church to grow. And it was that they shared their financial wealth. They shared it. They gave it freely. And so what we're going to see today is we're actually going to see a failure, a moment of failure and a moment of tragedy in the early church. And so let's get started where we left off last week. Acts chapter 4 verse 34 says this, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them. And brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Here's what I know. Economic sharing is a theological to biblical concept. Economic sharing really is God's idea. And what it says is it says this, God has blessed me so that I might fulfill my obligation to bless others. God gave to me not only so that I can enjoy it, but so that I can meet the needs and be a blessing to others also. And so the early church, they really believed, they really believed that nobody should be in need, that everyone should be without need. They believed if there was a need around them, then risk of givers. And the first type of giver is like flint. And you have to strike it. You have to, you have to strike it to produce a spark. The second type of giver is like a sponge, and you have a sponge, and you have to take the sponge, and you have to wring it out. You have to squeeze it to turn loose its contents that are held inside. But the third type of giver is like a honeycomb, and they just kind of ooze out all over the place. Here's what I know. The gospel, the gospel in the early church, it loosened the disciples' grip on their wealth. And it tightened their grip on one another. So it loosened their grip on their stuff and their possessions and their money and their wealth. But what it did is it, this guy, look at this, I love and I absolutely enjoy reading Luke's gospel, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts written also by Luke, is, is Luke is a little sneaky. What he likes to do is, is like right here in chapter four, is he likes to introduce us to one of the major characters, one of the key influencers in, in the movement of the church, in the story of God's church, and his name is Barnabas, which means encourager. More specifically, the word Barnabas means to advocate for someone, to, to advocate. And so we don't really see Barnabas again. And so Luke kind of inserts him right here in the story of his church. And we don't see him again until Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, we know about a guy named Saul. And Saul was a persecutor of the church. And Saul went around killing and arresting Christians. And so he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, blinds him. He goes for healing. God transforms him from a mission of oppression to the mission to advance the kingdom of God. And nobody, nobody trusts Saul. They actually assume Saul's in. He's trying to get on the inside. He wants to really do some work on the inside. And if he can get on the inside, then he can create all sorts of problems for the early Christians. And so nobody's going to trust Saul except for one. Barnabas. When nobody else would accept Saul, Barnabas did. He was an advocate. He was an encourager. 
As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 13, Barnabas is actually sent to the church of Antioch to investigate, to see what the church of Antioch is doing. And so then Saul, which we know as Paul, and since he's an advocate, he's an encourager for someone, whose side does he take, Paul's or John Mark's? Clearly he takes John Mark's. And I just want to take a moment and I just want to encourage people who are encouraging I want to encourage people who are advocating for other people because at some point in our history, we have defined encouragers as weak, as soft, as passive, as wimpy. And I want to tell you that the word encouragement actually comes from a Hebrew word that gives us the word compassion. And what I want us to understand is that it requires, it requires something, it requires guts, and it requires integrity, and it requires something to, to give compassion. It requires something to be an advocate for someone who can't advocate for themselves, and, and it requires a risk of being hated and, and, and unfriended. But what, this is what Barnabas does. He sells a piece of property that he has, And then he gives the money to the apostles so the apostles can distribute those funds to help anybody who had need. And it was just such a cool picture of the early church because the church was distributing these funds to people who had needs so that they would no longer be in need. And so now let's turn to Luke chapter, or Acts chapter 5. And let's look at Acts chapter 5. And listen, a lot of people who read this, they don't really like it because God kind of takes a couple of people out. He He just takes them out. And so people ask questions, what in the world's going on? And if we read this through the wrong lens, we can be pretty confused too. Look at Acts chapter 5, verse 1 with me. It says this, but a man named Ananias, which actually means God is gracious, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so some versions actually say also. So, so Ananias and Sapphira also sold a piece of property. So, so this is the question. What happens in the church when somebody gets recognized? What happens in the church when somebody gets praised? Isn't it true that then other people want to be recognized and praised too? You have to understand, this is the beginning of the church. The church is in its infancy, and Satan has done everything Satan could do to try to destroy this movement from the outside. He's used the religious leaders and the the political leaders, and he's trying to bring this persecution from the outside. And guess what? Satan's plan's not working very well, and so what does Satan do? He moves to an internal attack which is often what we'll see today. Even today, Satan will use people on the inside of the church who are, who are Christians, who are, who are devout followers of Jesus, maybe even givers and dedicated and consistent, but they, they stop the movement. They try to stall things out. And as a result, what God does is he protects his church, which gives me confidence even today that this is his and he will continue to protect it. So look at the verses with me again. This is what it says. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. In other words, with his wife's knowledge means that there's a collusion going on, that they were in this together, that they schemed together to get the details right so that their stories matched, their stories lined up. This idea that they would hold back or keep back, we get our word embezzlement. And what I want you to understand is be sure to notice that Ananias and Sapphira have really done nothing wrong. 
they sold some land and they gave some of the money to the leaders of the church, the apostles. This is not a problem. This is not a threat to the church. So what is the problem? Look at this, verse 3. But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain yours? After all, it was sold. Was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but you have lied to God. This is what Peter's saying. In other words, he's saying, listen, you have come to me with this money and you sold your land and, and the money is really yours and, and you've kept some. So, so you've given some of the money and you've kept some of the money. But here's the problem. You've told everybody that you're giving all the money. And so why didn't you just tell me that you sold the land, you're keeping some money for yourself and you're keeping some money and uh, giving some money to the apostles? Why did you tell everybody that you're giving all the money from the, purchase, from the sale of the land to the apostles? I mean, here's the reality. It was their land before they sold it. They could have done whatever they wanted with the land. They could have done whatever they wanted with the money after they sold the land. They could do whatever they want. That's not the problem. The problem is that they used this deal to build their own reputation, to get praise, to try to elevate themselves instead of really genuinely helping people in and through the church. And this is why Peter says, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit and say you were giving it all when you actually didn't give it all? Peter's asking the question, what are you trying to accomplish? What are you trying to do here? And so look what happens in verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. <laughs> and great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And so God strikes him down. He breathes his last breath. I mean, he could have just died, right? But, but there's something unique that happens. Look at the next verse. After an interval of about three hours, Sapphira, Ananias' wife, came in, not knowing what happened. And one of the questions I keep asking is, how did she not know? You, three hours has gone by. How did you not know what happened? And I guess, I guess it was before prayer chains were created. Verse 8 says this, And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. And so in other words, she, she buys into the same scheme. She, she communicates the deal. I mean, they, they, they work together to create this story and to tell the story. And so this had to have been a really tense moment for her. What is she supposed to do? And so wives, what would you do? What would you have done? You and your husband agree to lie and then you're asked about it. So what do you answer? Look at verse 9. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And I wonder if in that very moment, Peter's kind of announcing, hey, guess what? Your husband's died, and you're going to die too. Verse 10, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead. And they're thinking, we just buried one. What are we going to do now? And so they carried her out, and they buried her beside her husband. And verse 11 says, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And I think there's some really good lessons that we can learn 
from Acts chapter 5, from Ananias and, Ananias and Sapphira. And the first lesson that we can learn is really important for all of us to get. It's this. Sin is not just an individual issue. Sin is a community issue. See, what we think is we think I can do whatever I want. I can go wherever I want to go. I can watch. I can talk. I can, I can, I can consume. I can do all of these things. I can do whatever I want because what I do only affects me. It's between me and God and just me. It involves all of us. That's what we have to understand. We cannot underestimate the power of, of the Spirit that binds us together. You remember Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. They were of one heart. They were of one soul. They were together in this. And what we need to realize is we need people in our lives. We need community. We need people who are going to look at us when we're headed down the wrong track and say, stop, don't go there. Stop doing that. Because my sin and your sin affects the kingdom movement. My sin and your sin affects the church and the health of the church. And this is driven home in the book of Joshua, actually. According to Joshua chapter 7, there's a man named Achan. And Achan, what he did is he kept a block of gold, he kept some silver, and he kept this Babylonian garment for himself from Jericho. When they destroyed Jericho, he kept for himself some of this. The problem is that Joshua gave very specific instructions, and Joshua said, listen, here's what's going to happen. All silver, gold, all vessels of brass and iron, they were supposed to become a part of the treasury of God. And so Achan, he keeps for himself some of these things that they found. Look at what Joshua says about it in chapter 7, verse 1. Joshua 7, verse 1 says, But the people of Israel broke faith. Did you catch this? Who kept it? Achan did. But Joshua 7 says, The people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi and son of Zab Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against who? Not just Achan, all the people in Israel. And so this verse, it suggests that Achan was personally guilty. He's the one who was wrong, but the entire nation broke faith. The entire nation was punished when they tried to capture the city of Ahi. They actually failed in their first attempt because they're being punished because of the sins of Achan. Listen, all of us suffer for the sins. Sin is communal. And until we believe this, until we understand this, we will continue to struggle with the, the sins that we want to overcome. We will continue to struggle to overcome those sins that we struggle with. Not only that, but we will struggle to help others overcome their sins until we realize it's a communal. We're in this together. For better or for worse, we need to hold one another accountable so that the kingdom of God can move forward. Here's another lesson that we learn from Ananias and Sapphira. God protects the community that He died to start. The church was a result of everything that Jesus had done. And this was especially true in its infancy. The church is young. It's just begun. And, and sin in the community could affect the entire future of the church. But what I want you to notice is this. Who is behind this? Satan is. The enemy is behind this. And this is the first time, Acts chapter 5, that we actually see Satan come onto the scenes since the cross. I mean, it was Satan's goal before Jesus died on the cross that he would actually kill Jesus. But now what Satan wants to do is he wants to destroy Jesus' church, not from the outside because he's already failed at that. But he wants to destroy Jesus' church from the inside. 
And suddenly we realize that you can be filled with the Holy Spirit and you can be filled with Satan. And this happens in the church. This happens. In this situation, Ananias and Sapphira, they, they give the first black eye for the early church, the first moment where the church has a mark on it for the first time. And by the way, the text doesn't tell us that they went to hell. The text actually reveals and, and indicates that they maybe were still in good standing with God. Why? Because they were buried properly. They weren't just thrown into a, a heap of people, a grave with, with a mass grave. They were actually buried by each other honorably and, and with purpose here. And so, so the church today is filled with two kinds of people. Every church is filled with two kinds of people. And the reality is it's nearly impossible to tell the difference between the two. On the outside, Ananias and Sapphira, they look like Barnabas. How do I know that? Because they're both active in the church. They're both generous. However deep in the heart of Ananias and Sapphira was the love of money and the love of people's praise. That's what they were after and what they were looking for. Another lesson is this. Fear is powerful. Fear is powerful. Verse 5 says, great fear came upon all who heard of it. And verse 11 says, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. What was the result? What was the result of this fear? Look at verse 12 of chapter 5. Now many signs and many wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. And none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And guess what? Because of the fear, even more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. Yes, fear is not something to fear. However, fear can cause courage. And guess what? Courage is a weapon that God can use in His economy. God is infinite in love, and we get to know His love when we begin to encounter the power and the magnificence of His glory. And you know what? The truth is this. God will do whatever it takes to capture all of us. He wants all of us. He, he will get our attention using whatever method He needs to use so that He can begin getting 100% completely all of our heart. Here's another lesson. There is absolutely no room in the church for selfishness. There's no room for it. Ananias actually got what all of us deserve. He got what all of us deserve. And we have to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden itself. You remember this? Satan tries to convince Eve that she could be as powerful as God is. That if she just ate the fruit, she could become like God, powerful. And so this is where the doctrine began. I, I call it the doctrine of me, me, me. Me, me, me. Because we are controlled by simple acts of self. Achan, for example, one guy. One guy decided to do what was best for him, that was best for him instead of what was best for the people of God, for the nation of Israel. What we do affects the church. What we do affects the church. And our, our selfishness doesn't just hurt us. Our selfishness hurts the church. And, and this is the reality. Achan and Ananias, they underestimated two very critical truths that we still underestimate today. The first truth is this. Uh, we underestimate the depth of my own sin. The depth of your own sin. We underestimate it. But then we also underestimate the act that God accomplished on the cross through Jesus to wipe away my sin. And what we should do is not underestimate these, but acknowledge these. 
Too often what we want is we want to reject the church. We want to change the church. We want to make it my way for me to accomplish what I want to accomplish. And this is the reality. You can reject the church, but you cannot redefine the church. The church is His. Here's another lesson. Despite this failure, God's Spirit kept moving and the gospel kept multiplying. And disciples were being made. It's such a cool thing because I think sometimes I'm tempted to look at the book of Acts and I'm tempted to say, look at the perfect church. If we could just become like the perfect church again, it was really clear, really clear in Acts chapter 5 that the church had its struggles, the church had its persecutions, and the church had its weaknesses. They, They had members who lied and they had members who were hypocritical and they had members who were inconsistent. And I find comfort in the reality that God still used them to advance the kingdom of God, to keep the gospel going, to keep the movement going where people would turn to Jesus. And he didn't need them to be perfect to use them. As a matter of fact, look at verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the number, added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets. And they laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them, And the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were healed. Man, isn't this cool? God used them to accomplish great things for him. What I find fascinating is what happens next. Verse 17 says this of Acts chapter 5. It says, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees. And they were filled with jealousy, and they arrested the apostles, and they put them in the public prison. Man, did you see that? All these great things, the movement's growing, people are being taken care of, people are turning to Jesus, disciples are making disciples who are making disciples, and it is spreading like crazy. And what happens? There is jealousy from the political leaders, there is jealousy from the religious leaders, there is jealousy, and what do they do? They begin arresting the apostles, they begin putting them in jail, locking them up in public prison. And you can read the rest of Acts chapter 5. I'd actually encourage you to do so. But read Acts chapter, look what happens. And then at the end of Acts chapter 5, verse 42, this is what it says. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. This is the reality. When we encounter Jesus and our life changes, remarkable things happen. When we acknowledge that Jesus actually rose from the dead and that he's alive and he's sitting at the right hand of God today, remarkable things begin to happen. And I just want to share my heart with you as I conclude. I just want you to hear my heart on some things that are going on in the world. This is what I know. People who are persecuted usually pray for boldness usually pray for God to give them boldness and courage to keep doing the things that they were asked to do. Did you actually know that in the underground church in China, they actually pray this prayer, that their backs would be strong enough to endure whatever they might have happened to them. That their backs would be strong enough to to endure the beatings and the whippings, that they would be strong enough to do that. As a matter of fact, they actually call the prison the university. They go to university. If they get locked up in prison, they call it university because this is where they go to learn. What are they learning? They're learning how to be a disciple. And this has been one of my prayers. It's been one of my prayers that we would learn 
how to be a disciple. I'm with you. The way we're doing church oh, isn't what I had planned. I didn't go to Bible college. I didn't become a pastor so that I could become a professional camera speaking preacher. It's not what I did. And I realize it's not gone the way that we want it to go. And I, and I know that things aren't quite the way they should be. And, and I get it. But, but here's the deal. What does God want us to learn right now about being His disciple? Is it possible? Is it possible that we've relied too much on the structure and the programs and the building of the church instead of the Spirit of God to influence us so that we might be disciples who are making disciples? See, I get it. I get it. There, there's a lot of uncertainty in our world today. I, I get it. But I also don't understand it all. You know, regardless of political sanctions or guidelines or mandates, whether you believe in them or whether you don't believe them, I want you to understand something. God is so much bigger than our government. And God is so much bigger than our sickness and, and so much bigger than the stock market and our, and our financial problems. And I've watched, I've watched, and I have some things from my heart that I just want you to hear. And my hope and my prayers that you hear them as words from Him, not just from me. When something happens that we don't like, Something our president does or something our governor does, maybe from the wrong political party or the right political party or this party or this party, we act defeated. We act defeated when new guidelines come down, our mandates are made. And even the, even the phrase we should be challenged. Who, who is we? Who, who is we? I've heard, well, we are heading for disaster. Well, we're just going to keep having things taken from it. We, who is we? Is we defined by the area where we live? Is we defined by the church? Is we based on an identity of earthly citizenship? Or is my devotion to Him who transcends all geological and geographical boundaries, political parties, and earthly citizenships? Where, where is my devotion? It becomes so clear what our faith is in when things start to happen that we don't like. We're in the middle of a political season. <laughs> Didn't know if you knew that or not. Turn on the news. Actually, don't do that. I, actually, don't. But we're in the middle of this political season, have you noticed? And a lot of people, a lot of people within the church, inside the church, are going to get upset with other Christians inside the church. You know why? Because we're going to assume they're voting for the wrong person. Or, or they're not voting for the right person. Partisanship makes us believe that this is a do-or-die situation. And Jesus, Jesus was the only one who did the do-and-die and rising proposition that changes all of that. Listen, maybe your guy gets in. Maybe the other guy gets in. Guess what? God will still be God. God will still be on the throne. And the world will keep turning. And guess what? Things will keep moving until Jesus decides to return. God is still God and God is still doing things. And I've been asked a lot lately, man. I've been asked, and, I, and I'm going to respond to some of these. 
but I've been asked about prophecy, and I've been asked about religious freedoms, and, and specifically, what will happen, what will happen, Pastor Tom, if religious freedoms are taken away from us? And the reality is, I don't understand the question. I don't. It's actually something that I've said to God. I've cried out to God. I'm like, God, I'm either, I'm either missing it, I'm ignorant, or, or, or God, I'm aligned with you, and my hope and my prayer is that I'm aligned with you. When people say, what are you going to do? What are you going to do, Tom? What are you going to do if religious freedoms are taken away? And I don't understand the question because I've committed my life, no matter what, to honor and worship God. That's what I've done. I I don't understand. If a Muslim takes over our country or the Buddhists take over the country, guess what? I will worship God because I've committed to worshiping God. My allegiance doesn't change because my allegiance is only for Him. Just like I can travel to Kenya and I can walk through the Mathari Valley and it be a predominant Muslim community. And guess what? I worship God. I preach Jesus alive. That's what I do. I'm grounded and, and I'm rooted and I'm changed because the resurrection has forever changed my life. And the more I stare at Jesus the real, authentic, true Jesus, the Jesus I study about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Jesus that was prophesied about in the prophets, and I become more and more like him. And we will become like him so long as we're gazing and staring at the right Jesus, not one that we've made and created. But here's what I know. Because of the resurrection, the stock market could crash. The economy could collapse. The banks could become insecure. Uh, The government could sift through my emails. And we could install CCTV where every move I make is watched. And you know what? You know what? I am a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus is the leader of a movement to take over the world. And I join him with my one and only weapon, which is prayer, with bold proclamation that Jesus is alive. And this is a message that relies more on him than it does me. It relies on somebody who is bigger than us. Why? Because my allegiance is to Jesus. We sing the old hymn, on Christ the solid rock I stand. My hope is built on nothing less. Everything else, everything else is sinking sand. Man, check, check your heart. Where's your allegiance? Are you in? Are you devoted? We're going to sing a song. And I want you to think and I want you to pray just about where you're at. We're going to sing all hail King Jesus because he's Jesus. And when we fix our eyes on him, the waves that crash, the things that crumble and fall, the the, the ground that shakes, we're still steady because our eyes are on him. And so is your eyes on everything that's going on around us? Is it on the evening news? Is it on uh, talk radio? Where are your eyes? What, what are you focused on? And if it's not Jesus, then your whole world is going to feel like it's going to fall down. But I, I'm telling you again, I'm, I'm either ignorant 
which is a possibility. I'm beginning to find my life more aligned with Jesus now than it ever has been. Because I can fix my eyes on Him and nothing else really matters. And I hope that that would be true for you too. Let's sing.